0: Hi there, Michael Zuber. Thanks for listening to the One Rental at a Time podcast. Did you know that the book One Rental at a Time is now available on Audible? Yes. To all my podcast listeners out there, One Rental at a Time is now available on Audible. Go check it out and please leave a five-star review. Have a great day. Hey
1: everyone, welcome back for another episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. My name is Emil Shore, and on today's episode I am joined by my co-host Tom Schneider and we're interviewing the author of One Rental at a Time. His name is Michael Zuber. It's actually one of my favorite real estate investing books. Makes things very simple. Really excited to have him on the show and break things down for you guys. And on this episode, just to give you guys a couple quick highlights, We talk about why Michael actually likes to go against the herd, so when he sees everyone going one way, why he always looks the other way, and some really strong tips for you guys there. He's also one of the few investors I personally know who has gone through the Great Recession back in 2008 and has some really, really valuable insights to share, especially with the economic climate we're in right now. And we also talk about why most investors just need to focus on getting to their first four properties before they think about scaling. So without further ado, let's hop into this episode. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I know just before we press record, mentioned that we had been talking for a while and wanting to do something with Roofstock and yourself. So I'm glad we finally again to get you on the podcast and to share your
0: experience. Thank you for the opportunity. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with you or your background or the book, One Rental at a Time, which I actually have a signed copy of on my desk, you would come by the Roofstock office about a year ago and dropped a couple off. And it was a great book. I loved it. But for people listening who aren't familiar with you, can you just give us a quick background before we get into it?
0: Yeah. So I think I am kind of the target market for roof stock. So what I mean by that is I was a busy full-time employee. I realized that I was not going to make my wealth in the stock market, right? I wasn't the next Warren Buffett. For My journey started after the dot-com crash. So it's been about 20 years, but a lot of folks listening to this are probably suffering through 2020s version of that. What I did out of that rubble, Is I started my real estate investing journey. I happen to live in the Silicon Valley, which is an extremely expensive place to invest or own. That was true in 2002. And it's more true today than ever. So I had to go in and find a market. For me, that meant Fresno, California, which is two and a half hour drive one way away. And over the next twenty years or so, I built up a you know a real estate portfolio that allowed me to retire financially free, replace two six-figure incomes. I did that through the huge run-up through two thousand two to oh eight, survived the crash, thrived in the crash, and, and rode the wave back. It all started with single-family homes. My journey does include some ten thirty-one exchanges at the right time. Then it includes a lot more single family homes because that was what was on sale during the crash. And it's kind of a pretty cool journey. And again, I was never a real estate professional. I worked a full-time job, as did my wife. And rental property, just boring single family homes was it. This whole bigger is better nonsense that the media was pushing was stupid. And unfortunately, it's going to cause a lot of people pain today. But you know what? Single family homes are okay. You know, everybody needs shelter. Is it easier to shelter in place in a house than an apartment? I can tell you for sure. I think renter nation continues and affordable, quality single family homes is what I built my portfolio on and I feel best about going forward. So that's kind of who I am.
1: Awesome. There's so many things I want to unpack in your intro. I want to start with, I was actually rereading some of the book last night and there was a super important point in the book where you said, I knew I had to make a choice and bet on one vehicle to achieve financial freedom. And you ended up choosing real estate investing. I know you had, you'd been day trading and Mm -hmm. didn't do so hot there. How come, you know, this is like, this is contrary to what a lot of people believe in that you need a really balanced portfolio. You should have some stocks, you should have some of this. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually, I'm with you, but I kind of want to get your take behind. Why did you choose to just go all in with real estate versus like a more Diverse approach.
0: Yeah, let's unpack the stock equation first because I did really, really well for a long time, like six figure winnings back to back years. I had to report to the IRS. But when things go bad and the dominoes fall in the stock market, they fall rapidly, like in minutes. And I just couldn't get out of the way. I, ha- I had a job that took me all over the world. And I remember one particular day, I took off for a flight from San Francisco and I landed in Europe and I lost half my portfolio. Nothing I could do. I was at 30,000 feet. Just what happened? You know, another time I was waking up early in Japan and looking at what happened the last evening in New York and again, lost like 25%. So stocks can hit you and you just can't get out of the way. you got market risk, sector risk, individual stock risk, You know all these things. But when you go back to real estate and what do you have? You, you have a market that's slower. You have an imperfect market. So if you do spend your time and you learn your market, you can find deals. You can create deals. You can buy a two-bedroom, one-bath that's at 1,200 square feet, add another wall, a closet, assuming you have egress with a window to for fire. You can create a three-bedroom, one-bath. So you can buy a two, but rent a three. There are so many more things that are easy to understand and comprehend. In real estate that just makes it a far better investment. I don't have the time or energy, nor the ability, the emotional understanding to deal with the stock market. I haven't owned stocks in 20 years. You can't get me to do it. People always ask me, well, how far do they have to go down? Is is 80% enough? Yeah, maybe but you know, I hope they don't go that way for other people. But real estate's just easier. Yes, it has its ups and downs. Yes, the 08 crash was a real estate crash, but it was really a lending crash. And I say that as someone survived uh, and frankly thrived in it. But it's just a better way to go. You need water, food, shelter. Stocks don't appear anywhere on that hierarchy of needs. So I much rather play in the hierarchy of needs than some pieces of paper that can be lost in a minute.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I also love that, like you mentioned, you have so much more control of it. You know, with the stock market, it's like you're beholden to what happens in the market. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're beholden in real estate as well. Market fluctuates and things, but you do have a little bit more control. It's slower and not as sexy,
2: but over time, Mm I feel really good about it. The Maslow factor, just the Maslow hierarchy of needs, having a place to live, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I've, I've been listening to some of your stuff, and I, I love how you talk about education so much. And within mm-hmm. real estate investing, there's a lot of different directions that you can focus on and learning. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think is more important and less important as it relates to getting up to speed on different aspects of real estate investing.
0: Yeah, I believe it all boils down to one answer. And I'll say this until I'm dead, is, is you just have to learn your market. It all starts with making money when you buy, as trite as that sounds but you have to learn your market. And for most investors, and I include myself in that, again, I was a full-time employee. I was raising a family. I had no time. So learning your market, we hear that and it's like, oh my God, where am I going to find the time? Well, if you learn your market the way I talk about it, it's 15, 20 minutes a day. I've done it every day for nearly 20 years now. Yes, I no longer work now, but I used to travel 100,000 miles a year on planes, spend 100 nights in hotels, raise my daughter, blah, blah, blah. So I get it. I'm not saying stuff that I didn't do and frankly, that I still do today. So You have to learn your market. You don't need to learn how to do click funnels. You don't need to learn how to do direct mail. You don't need to know how to do texting and cold calling and all this other nonsense. I built my entire portfolio out of the multiple listing service, which you could think of as realtor.com or Zillow or, or Roofstock. Right? I looked at what was available. I knew the market. I could compare deals and I could buy the best deal. It's just about learning your market. All this other nonsense we say to confuse us or make us feel better. When I say learn your market, it means comparing deals. But your spreadsheet's got to be like 13 columns. If it's more than 13 columns, you're overthinking it and you're just making yourself feel better, but doing nothing. right? I can compare a 600 square foot, one bedroom, one bath house that was built in 1930 with a 20 unit apartment building. And I use those numbers because I own those numbers. I'm not talking about anything I don't have. And the ability to do that in one spreadsheet, is phenomenally interesting. When I help students, I help them focus and I help them execute. And it's all about learning the market. Every market produces an average return. And if you find, figure out the average, let's say it's six percent. If you just do good or great deals, it means you're gonna do seven and eight percent deals. That's it. That's all you got to do. All this other stuff's nonsense. But people don't want to hear that. They want to think there's some secret sauce or there's you know some other you know underhand handshake and tattoo you got to get. None of that nonsense. You learn your market, you understand what your market produces, and your job is to go find or create deals that are better than average. It's that simple.
1: Just to sum that up, besides understanding what things are trading at in your market, what are some other ways that you recommend like people actually dive in and learn the market? Are there some other kind of strategies you recommend to people?
0: Again, I think they need to look at it every day, right? They need to set a criteria. And let's just give you some examples, right? Pick a zip code, pick a property type, zip code 12345. Three bedroom, two bath, two car garage between 1200 and 1600 square feet built before or after 1975. I don't know what it is, but whatever your criteria is, look at that criteria every day. It's not, hey, let's look over on this part of town and let's look over at this part and let's look at that other part of town across the country because you can't compare Milwaukee with Dallas, Texas, with San Diego. Even if you pick three bedroom, two bath homes that are 1287 square feet exactly in five different markets, it would be irrelevant data. It would confuse the shit out of you and you wouldn't know what's going on. You have to spend time in your market, right? When people come to Roofstock, they should be looking at an area and going, okay, which one do I want to be? They should understand that first and then dive into that market. But once you're in that market, it's just about what the better deal is. I don't care if the house is yellow, brown, blue, or red. If it's a better deal, it's a better deal.
1: I like that. Okay. So starting, you mentioned your journey began with single family. And then over time, mm-hmm. I think in the book you mentioned in 2008, the environment changed. And so you did some 1031s and mm-hmm. in exchanged into like uh multifamily. But how come you decided to get started with single family? How come that was your strategy out of the gate?
0: I mean, I wish I had a better answer, but uh, I'm a simple person. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. My family was raised in a three bedroom, two bath house. So that's what I bought. I mean, it's really that simple. I didn't know any. I thought millionaires and billionaires bought apartment buildings. I didn't even have concepts of that. It never entered my realm of a possibility until I went to a meetup after 10 years. And, you know, some old guy in the audience said, why don't you go look at multifamily? Because housing is so expensive. I'm like, can I do that? Can I? Like, how, do you, how do you do that? I just had no concept. So it's what I knew. Yeah. It's what I was comfortable with. It's what I could look for, right? It's really that simple.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great reason. I mean, I think a lot of people might forget that just because you start with one doesn't mean you're beholden to it forever. Like Things mm-hmm. will change as your investing journey changes, as the market changes, you may go back and forth between different types of investment.:
0: And let's be very clear, right? My journey starts with eight single family homes that goes to 80 units because I did 1031 exchanges. Why? Because housing was expensive. Let's just look at real numbers. And you could look this house up on Zillow. It's 1818, so 1818 Norris Drive East 93703. So when you look that up, you see that I bought it for 107. I sold it for like 263 or 268, like three and a half years later. The person who bought it lost it two and a half years later, and it retrades at 75, 75. 10 years after that person gets it at 75, they sell it for 180. So. Was it a good idea that I sold it for 263? Heck yeah. It still isn't back after what 12 years? When housing gets expensive, I'll sell. But guess what? I've been telling people for years to buy houses because multifamily has been getting run up. And I sold half my apartments in 2019 and I was buying single family homes. They're just a better investment. Bigger isn't better. Apartments don't do better in a recession. All these people that have been following Grant Cardone are about to lose their butt when they should have been buying single-family homes. They're just better. They're easier to want. They're easier to retrade, easier to get loans. Single-family homes are just the best investment, especially with what we're going through right now. I was listening to
2: you, Michael, in another interview, and you had this really simple way of identifying if prices are overpriced versus underpriced. And I believe it was like a ratio.
0: Well, I think what you're referring to is something that's been called the affordability index. That's the one. So it's either national association of realtors or California association of realtors. I don't know which one it is, but basically they've been putting out a number every month for the last 50 years. And if you go back and historically speak, and again, this is California based, but it applies to the rest of the country. You can track single family home affordability And when it gets sub 20%, which means one in five people can qualify for the average home, it's unaffordable. And if it ever gets below 15, it's really unaffordable. So let's play these numbers out. When I was selling my houses and moving into apartments in Fresno, California, the affordability index was like 13 or 14. Today, it's 42. Very different. But San Francisco today is nine. So I believe there are highly unaffordable markets today that are going to get clobbered San Francisco, Santa Clara County, New York City. but most of the country is going to be fine. Most of the country is not unaffordable, especially at record low interest rates. So the affordability index has allowed me to get dance between the raindrops. I now have 20 years of history proving I can get out of assets and into others before, the world blows up. I got out of houses into apartments. I just got out of apartments back into houses. And I've been telling everybody for a year that I was doing it and they didn't want to listen. They were making fun of me. I am certainly happy I got rid of apartments and I own a lot more houses today.
2: Is that transition going in and out of housing versus apartments? Is that just looking at under knowing what the market cap rate should be? based on that asset class and jumping back and forth between the two? Or how do you make that decision to, to tilt into housing versus multi?
0: It's multiple things. So cap rate certainly plays into it. Although I think that's a manipulated number that all the experts use to try to confuse us. I actually spend a metric. lot of Yeah, it's a vanity metric. Oh, I got a six cap and I got a. I I mean, it's just whatever. But what I do is okay. I speak at a lot of real estate meetups. And what I do is I watch the herd. I watch where all the herd is going. And when the herd feels like they're going to run me over, I get out of the way. So let's give real examples. 2006, where was the herd? Single family homes. How did I know? I went to various real estate meetups where people were celebrating buying contracts on condos that were yet built. So somebody would stand in line in a lottery in the Bay Area. They would get a contract. The house isn't built yet. The condo is not built. They would then sell that contract three months later to somebody else. House is still not built and make 50 grand. And then they do it again and again. And by the time the condo was built, the price had run up 200 grand. That's not how this is supposed to work. So that's a sign. What happened in the meetup in late 2019? Everybody was a new syndicator. Everybody was talking about multifamily. Cap rates went from seven to seven and a half in my market to four. And it was all about equity raises. I'm like, you guys are freaking idiots. These things are hard to manage. There's a recession coming. I'm getting out of the way. Here, list five of my apartments. Three of them went into escrow right away. I closed them. I'm sitting on more cash than I've ever had. And I'm just going to keep buying single family homes. So, in reality, there's a lot of metrics, but I watch the herd, the lemmings, the herd, whatever. And when it feels like it's going to run me over, I just, Dance out of the way and let them run off the cliff. I love that. Basically,
1: zig when others are zagging. Yep,
0: and it built. And oh, by the way, it's just as negative. Like 2010, the year that I bought the most single family homes. Everybody hated real estate. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And I'm buying houses hand over fist at land value. Fully functioning three bedroom, two bath house at land value. I'll take everyone I can it'll happen again. It's going to happen in 2020 and 21.
1: One of the questions I had written down was, I know you went through the great recession in 2008, not, you know, there's a lot of newer investors who haven't experienced that pain, myself included, mm-hmm. Tom, mm-hmm. I think same for you. So like, as we're entering into a period where it's very, I mean, we're heading into recession, what mm-hmm. are like some of the big takeaways you have from 2008 that people can use now to come out of this on the right end?
0: So, I mean, some of this you had to prepare for first, right? The first one is there's going to be a lot of people that don't make it through, right? There are people flipping in California today, you know, above the median price in the Bay Area. They're done. The jumbo market is toast. The job market in the Bay Area is going to struggle for a while. There's just people that had the wrong inventory at the wrong time. And that goes for builders as well. Because, again, think about where we are. We're about to enter the spring selling season. So, there have been builders that have been ready to bring inventory to market landing right now where there's nobody that can go to a house, an open house. That's going to hurt, man. People are going to get hurt. But in in reality, what I would tell people, and I'm telling people all the time is you need to survive until August 1st. And I say that as somebody who has hundreds of tenants, right? We were all nervous about April collections. Well, you know what? I got 93% collected as of the 14th. In a normal month, it's 95. So, yeah, you know, it's down 2%. But in reality, that's, you know, one and a half people. So, rent collection hasn't been that bad, bad, at least in April. Could it be worse in May? Sure. But by then, unemployment's coming and $1,200 checks are coming. So, you know, it, it should be okay, but we'll see. But the, the reality is, you got to put together your debt structure, your expenses. You can survive through the summer so you can thrive for the next six quarters. The next six quarters, August 1st through the all of 2021 are going to be the time to make some money. Is going to be the time to invest. And again, as I talk about in my book, getting to four rental properties, which is really what I think Roofstock should focus on. If you can get everybody to four rentals, it's going to change their financial future. You have a platform that can help people get their first four. That should be a marketing strategy, a message. Let us get you your first four. And let's just go. Stop (laughs) this! I gotta have a hundred, and I gotta have all this bullshit numbers. Let's just get to four, and then we'll talk about getting it to ten. So that's what I'm thinking.
1: I like that. We might we might have to start using that.
0: Well, just give me credit. (laughs) Powered by Michael Zuber.
2: Yeah,
1: there you go. First four on that. I mean, you're right. I think it's like when you see people who have a massive portfolio, it's really intimidating, really daunting. I think that's Mm -hmm. a great message. First, focus on your first couple. Then you have some options and. You can move from there. What are some of the strategies you use to grow your portfolio? Let's say you had a couple on your belt. How yeah. did you go from four to, I mean, now you have, I think.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter what I have now. Let's just talk about the first eight, which is a number that anybody in time could think about. So, again, let's do it. I did not come to this with a lot of money. I had $40,000 to my name saved up because I lost all that money after making six figures in the stock market multiple years, or right? I just got crushed. So I had 40 grand when I started this. And again, I had no special access. I didn't have roof stock. I didn't know anybody. I found a market after spending a year looking in the Bay Area. I found a market in Fresno that worked. So I put half my stake down on the first house. I bought a house roughly for 100. We've talked about it, Norris Drive. It was 107, but let's just say 100. So that was my first house. Then about nine months later, I realized that Countrywide Mortgage would give me a, what's called a nine, or an 80-10-10. So I only had to put 10% down. So I bought another house for 100 right? 80% first, 10% second, 10% down. That's an 80, 10, 10. Then I did that a third time, like six months later. So the first two years I had three houses and I had no money left, nothing. right? Uh, but what happened is that first house had appreciated. Now, some of that was unnatural and all of that, but again, the house had appreciated from like hundred to 160. So I did was a cash out refi. So I pulled out cash, I did create an alligator, which is a negative cash flow property, which is a big no-no, but it's what I did. But I raised almost $30,000 and I bought two more houses, again, using 80, 10, 10. So I was at three, now I'm at five. And then I went back to the second house I bought and did another cash out refi. So again, this whole inventory of houses I now was built on $40,000 in cash. Now I've added new cash a couple of times throughout that, but it's never been a lot of money. It's been about cash-out refis. It's been about 1031 exchanges. It's been about raising private money in 2010 when no banks would loan to me. It's just about knowing your market. When you know your market, you know what a good or great deal is, you can get it done. I borrowed for my 401k. I took a loan out on my cars that were paid off in the crash because I knew I didn't want to miss an opportunity. So I went and found money. I love that.
1: Did you even, when you were first getting started, I think it's easy to get inundated with a lot of these strategies we're talking about, 1031, cash out refi. Were you even thinking about that before you got started? Or is it like get started and then figuring things out as you go along?
0: I had no master plan, man. I just knew I wanted the next one. That's all I ever thought about. I had two goals, get the next one, but make the next one better than the last one I just did. That was my goal for 15 years. I always wanted the next deal to be better than the one I just completed. And for the most part, I was pretty successful at doing that. The first one I bought, I paid retail. I didn't even negotiate. I'm like, oh, they want 107? I must have to pay 107. I had no concept.
2: Did you have a mentor or how did you, you know, there's a little bit of a barrier to entry of coming in or did you just forge the river? How did you come up to speed? Yeah.
0: Well, first off, YouTube university didn't exist. Podcast didn't exist. and Radio shows didn't exist. I did read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which gave me the light bulb. I mean, he does get a lot of credit. That's where I learned that, oh, you can actually get positive cash flow. Again, I grew up with nothing, right? My parents made 40 grand a year or less the whole time I was at home, right? So they had nothing left over to do any investing. So no, Rich Dad, Poor Dad gets credit. The book doesn't tell you why or how or any of that. That's actually why I wrote my book to be a compliment to that. Because I'm like, oh, okay, well, Rich Dad, Poor Dad's my light bulb, but here's my 15-year journey and all of my mistakes and things that went right. That's like a biography of our 15 years. But no, no mentor, Nothing. When I picked Fresno, California, I didn't know a soul. I just knew that I could buy a hundred K house and rent it for a thousand bucks. That's all I knew. It was probably risky, but, and that's why roof stocks, the answer, right? Cause you check people, you vet people, you can sort of check the checker, man. I rolled the dice. Uh, it certainly worked out, but uh, yeah. Is Fresno still your bread and butter or are you only market? Yep. Only market.
2: Oh, wow. Going deep. How did you decide
1: on Fresno by the way?
0: So the story we go through the book is we had spent a year looking in the Bay area, right? Cause all the books that I was reading in the early 2000s said invest 30 minutes from home, right? That's what they all said. Mm-hmm. At the time I lived in Cupertino, California which is one of the most expensive places to live and nothing made sense. We looked every Sunday for 52 weeks. Talk about dedication. We never could find something that worked. So we pulled out a California map. Yes, a physical map that we got from AAA and we started drawing circles around our house. And it wasn't until we got to Fresno, California, where we could find something that made sense. So for us, it was, are we comfortable getting on an airplane? Because we're kind of control freaks type A. And the answer was no. I already got an airplane three times a week for my job, and I wasn't doing that again. So that took away out of state. But then for us in Fresno, it had to be a big city. I didn't want to invest in a town, right? If it was 20,000 people wasn't interesting to me. I wanted a city. And Fresno at the time was like 600,000 people. It's now a million people. Its media income has never been great. I think when I started, it was 42 grand. It's 48 grand now, or might even 36, but it's 48 now. Uh, it survived the dot-com crash without even missing a beat. It's like, what tech crash? There is no tech here, right? It's basically a farming community and warehousing now. So it kind of misses all the big tech big military, but still a million people. And you can live there making 60 grand a year. And you can still do that today. So that's why I've been there, stayed there. Why did I stay? We toyed with Texas. We toyed with Arizona. But it just wasn't worth our risk. We didn't want to build another team. Building a team is hard, man. Just freaking hard. And we didn't have to. We don't live fancy. We have enough. So that's why we stayed.
2: The Bulldogs are there. Yes. The Fresno State Bulldogs. I have some older sisters that are Fresno State grads.
0: Yep. David Carr, Derek Carr. Yeah. Yep.
2: Speaking about team, I'd love to hear about that journey with regards to, you know, are you guys doing your own property management? Did you identify local property managers? I'd love for you to touch on that aspect.
0: Yeah. So team, right? Again, so I decided to buy in Fresno. I decided to buy a hundred thousand dollar house. I now have to find a team. I'm in escrow. (laughs) Talk about planning, right? Didn't do any of that. First thing, again, we were two and a half hours away, and I was very rarely in the state, let alone the country. So we've had property manager since day one, since we had a single house. Again, my job was to bust my ass, make as much commission as I could so that I could be happy at home and grow a real estate portfolio. I didn't want to get phone calls about plumbing issues or roof leaks or windows are broken. I didn't want any of that nonsense. So I gladly paid someone 10% for several years to manage my stuff. I wish I could tell you I had a big plan. I fired the first five. I can tell you the one thing that I hate. I hate it when real estate brokers spin off a property management arm because what happens in hot or cold markets is they lose focus. I want the person who owns a property management investor to be an owner of rental properties. And I don't want them to say, hey, I own a rental and it used to be the house I lived in that I traded when I got fancy and moved up. I want them to own dozens of units. Because I've seen a definite mind shift in how the property management firm is run when the owner, the principal, is an investor. That's a very, very vital piece for me. And it saved us. We went through five the first five years. We split our portfolio for a while. And then we just went with the one that was giving us the best service. Not the best prices. I don't believe in beating up on your property manager. Because again, they're supposed to be that gatekeeper between the tenants and me. As long as they're giving me the information and reports, I'll gladly pay them.
2: I love that just on a couple of levels, you know, an important strategic business decision that Roofstock made is property management is a difficult business and you need (laughs) local expertise. So, you know, for that reason, like we're not trying to go and be people's property managers as well. Like let's stay in our lane and be provide Mm -hmm. liquidity to the market and get deals up, help sellers, help buyers. But, you know, property management is a very challenging business and let the local experts take that.
1: Amen. Good idea. I want to shift gears. Michael, what I love about you is you're a very straight shooter. You know, everyone talks about this deal, that deal, how much money I'm making. Nobody talks about some of the unglamorous parts of being a landlord. And I think it's super important to know what you're getting into. Yeah. What are some of the unglamorous parts that people just don't know about that they should? Well,
0: first thing you have to realize about real estate investing, specifically being a buy and hold landlord is you are signing up to be in the people business. And unfortunately, when you deal with people, if you don't know by now, not all people are good. You're going to have some people lie to you. You're going to have some people steal from you. You're going to have some people do some things you wish they wouldn't do. That's just the kind of business you're in. You're also in a business that has sticks and bricks. So that means mother nature gets her vote as well. And sometimes it's rainy and sometimes it's windy. And I mean, you're in a business where you're guaranteed to have things break. You're guaranteed to have surprises. Most of your surprises are negative. Being a landlord you're going to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. You shouldn't be building your Excel spreadsheet for price for perfection. And that's why I sold my apartment buildings is because all these people were buying multifamily, bigger is better, and pricing them like their asset was perfect. That's not how the world works. When the business cycle changes, as we are seeing up close and personal today, people will withhold rent. You'll hear notions of rent strike. You will hear all kinds of crazy stuff. It is not all that glamorous. Real estate investing is not get rich quick. It is get rich for sure. You make more money the longer you hold. And again, I am proof positive that if you're willing to be in this for the long term, you can retire financially free. But don't forget, right? Right on the book, it talks about our 15 year journey to financial freedom. It's not one and a half years, it's not 15 months, it's 15 freaking years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember I was skimming through the book again, What were some of those trade-offs you had to make or some of the hard choices in terms of being able to grow?
0: Well, gosh, the biggest, there's two real caveats to our growth. First and foremost is we were willing to sacrifice. And that's a really hard decision because when you're talking about building a real estate portfolio, right, your job is to be very good at your day job, right? That's what you're banking on, right? But it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. So we ratcheted our expenses back. As I talk about in the book, my 30th birthday, we were spending everything we made, most of it on wants versus needs. So what we did over the course of several years is we ratcheted back our expenses, focusing very, very much on our needs, which just freed up cash to make subsequent new investments. And that's really hard to do, especially in the Silicon Valley, where all your friends are getting new houses and moving to different zip codes and getting all the fancy freaking cars and new phones and all this other freaking nonsense that doesn't mean anything. I mean, I remember one time, I think I wrote about in the book, where we came back from like our fifth or sixth housewarming, right? Somebody we knew actually lower in the organization chart than I was. So one of my direct reports moved into a new house in Los Gatos or Los Altos, Los Altos. And I remember pulling over and crying in my car, right? Because, you know, we're living in a little tiny condo that we bought in 99 and we still live in today as a matter of fact. But I remember crying going, we don't have that backyard. We don't have a pool. You know, we don't live in that school district and just lost it. And that's after like 10 or 12 years of sacrifice. And the good thing about the story is whenever I was off, Olivia, who's my wife was on. And when she was down, I was up. So we kind of pulled each other through. But 15-year journey was 15 years of sacrifice. You know, now we got lots of great toys and stuff to talk about, but that was hard to do. That was a big thing for us, just keeping each other balanced and and dealing with sacrifice. Because most people don't want to do it. It's hard. And being consistent is really hard.
1: Absolutely. I like that you mentioned having a partner who's on board and picks Mm -hmm. you up when you're down. I think that's so invaluable for anyone who's listening and has a partner and is thinking about this. No question.
2: I'd love to touch a little bit more on today. You know, we're in a pretty unique environment where it could go a lot of different direction. And I consider you a thought leader in the space. I'd love you to bucket smart money versus dumb money, you know, and this is kind of looking through a crystal ball. And why don't we start with the not so smart money? Like, what do you anticipate like those type of moves are the dumb money versus smart money?
0: So again, I look at, I think about this every day, right? I call it a chessboard. So let's talk about the pieces on the board. And then we can talk about smart and dumb money, but let's at least agree on the pieces. The first piece is lending. Lending, no matter who you are, whether you're a multifamily investor, fixer, flipper, or an owner-occupant, lending has gotten harder today. So lending will probably be hard for most of that stack through the end of the year. Maybe it loosens up next year. The part that will loosen up is owner-occupant buyers will loosen first. So that's a fact. Second is we have a lot of big banks that are creating huge reserves, JP Morgan Chase, $6 billion reserve. Wells Fargo, $3 billion reserve. Goldman Sachs, a $1 billion. Those are all in the last 48 hours. And what are they creating a reserve for? Bad debt, credit cards, and mortgages. There is now a talk track out there about people having forbearance, right? Oh, you're an owner-occupant and you have a Feddy or Freddie loan. Call them up and get 90 days forbearance. Get six months. Get 12 months forbearance. So people are going to do that because that's what the stupid media is telling them to do. Even if they have a job, they're calling and getting forbearance. Unfortunately, what they don't realize, and I put this out on my channel, is forbearance has a dark side. Forbearance is going to cause people to realize that there's a price to pay at the end, and many of them aren't going to have the savings to pay it. So we are doing nothing except creating tomorrow's short sales and foreclosures in most cases, which means... We are going to have less owner-occupant buyers going forward. That is one chess piece I am very confident in saying, which also means we're not having less people. That just means more people are renters. And I believe one thing that is going to happen, again, with this shelter-in-place order, another chess piece on the board, is more people are going to realize that shelter-in-place in in an apartment is harder to do than shelter-in-place in in a house. So I firmly believe that single-family home rentals are going to be the absolute best investment going forward. They will have the tailwind of easier lending in 2021, while the rest of the investing stack struggles. Multifamily is going to struggle. Retail is going to struggle. Office is going to struggle. The best asset, and I've been very clear on this for the last year and have just finished a video this morning saying is that single family homes are going to be the best investing in something I call real estate investing 2.0. It's all going to be about single family homes. This bigger is better nonsense is crashing. Uh, Syndicators like the big ones on YouTube are withholding distributions, which people didn't understand was what they signed on the dotted line. So good luck raising private money and multifamily. It's going to be about the single family home. I'm telling you, get to four, have a marketing mindset about helping people get to their first four. You're going to help a lot of people, man. Roofstock could be a, a thought leader in this space. Just get to four. And then after four, it's okay, let's take you to 10. But let's only get to four. And do you want to get to four in two years? Do you want to get to four in 18 months? Or is four in four years? Who cares? Let's just get to four. So I think single-family homes are going to be the best investment for the next couple of years without question.
2: I got a couple of quick-fire questions. They're like simple- All right. Awesome. So these are going to be two options. You don't need to overthink it kind of first thing that comes to your mind. And, you know, based on this discussion, I think I already know a couple of the answers, (laughs) but it'll still be a fun exercise to go through. I like it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. All right. Consolidation or diversification?
0: Uh, As far as personal portfolio? Sure. Yeah. Consolidation.
2: (laughs) All right. High rent growth or low vacancy? Low vacancy. Cash flow or appreciation?
0: <laughs> That's not even a choice. Cash flow each and every time. Come on. That's crazy talk.
2: <laughs> Good. I told you I already do. <laughs> Debt or equity? Equity. Local or remote investing?
0: Whatever the numbers make sense. Love it. For me, right? I'm in the Bay Area, so it has to be remote. Whatever makes sense.
2: Yep. Single family or multifamily?
0: Single family every day of the week. Turnkey or project? Turnkey. Again, thinking about who your audience is, turnkey every day. You don't have the project. You don't want the risk. You don't want the time. Turnkey, turnkey, turnkey.
2: All right. Last three questions Midnight oil or early bird worm? Early bird. Text message or email? Email. The last question, not really related, but an homage to where the quick fire challenge came from olive oil or butter? Butter. Awesome. Bon Appetit it came up with this structure and I, I love it. So awesome. Good answer. I choose butter, butter too. Always. <laughs> awesome, Michael. That was it.
1: Thank you, buddy. This is fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people connect with you, learn more about you and get a hold of One Rental at a Time, the book?
0: Yeah. If you'd like to go get the book, you can either get it on Amazon or Audible. It was just transitioned to Audible about six weeks ago. I'm glad we did that before this shelter in place. And then if you want to get this raw content. I put out two or three videos a day, each and every day on my YouTube channel called One Rental at a Time. Uh, Please subscribe, check it out. It's growing pretty fast.
1: Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Michael. Take care. All right. So that's our episode. Thanks again for joining us, everyone. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And we'll catch you next week. But before you go, please, as always, make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. We always want to know what you guys are thinking and what topics we can cover on future episodes. Happy investing.